Terrific. Thanks very much. And thanks um, to everybody for being, uh, being with us today. I hope it's warmer wherever you are than it is here in the New York area. <clears throat> so it's the end of the, uh, of the academic semester and want to touch on some of the developments on campus, but, but really it's, it's unavoidable to, to start uh, off campus, I think. And it's been a it's been a big it's been a big fall for BDS and for anti-Semitism generally, and there are a number of important developments that have and and incidents um, that we really need to <clears throat> to talk about. So I, I want to begin with um, in a in a sort of unpleasant area, and that's celebrities and politicians. So everybody, I'm sure, who, who's listening has been following uh, the, the very sad and bizarre and un, unhealthy breakdown of uh, Kanye West, a, a performer, designer, a very public um, breakdown and descent into kind of overt um, anti-Semitism. Um, really one of the most telling uh, and and uh, frankly bizarre incidents occurred maybe two weeks ago uh, when he appeared on the uh, Alex Jones show. Alex Jones, no stranger to um, bizarre, hateful sorts of um, behavior, and uh, Kanye West, um, you know, was basically full out in his praise of of Nazis to the point where. Even Alex Jones was going, whoa, this is a little bit too much. And the the impact of, of that and uh, the comments um, made by basketball player Kyrie Irving earlier in the month uh, regarding you know, blacks being the real Jews, and it's something that's shared by both West and, and Irving. And this is um, more or less straightforward uh, sort of nation of Islam, Hotepism, as it's also called. Um, <clears throat> the impact on the African American community in the United States is is negative and um, remains to be remains to be seen what the implications are. I, I pointed in the last monitor a couple of weeks ago to uh, protests that were being held in Brooklyn outside the Barclays Center during a um, basketball game by Nation of Islam uh, members, a couple hundred pro uh, chanting something to the effect that they are the real Jews. So that's one, one element of this. Uh, last month, I also discussed the bizarre, and I apologize if that word is going to be overused a little bit uh, in the next hour, um, meeting between um, former President Trump and Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, uh, who's a neo-Nazi white supremacist um, punk uh, at Mar-a-Lago. And it, it's which shows at the very least incredibly poor advance work and judgment on the part of uh, of Trump and at worst an indulgence of bizarre and horrifically negative individuals, uh, namely West and 
and Fuentes, who seems to have been an uninvited guest. Um, and uh, I'll mention something that happened yesterday, which was at a White House, um, a White House event, uh, a very nice photo op between um, the president and Mrs. Biden and Representative Ilhan Omar. The point being that uh, legitimization of anti-Semitism is coming from all sides uh, of and all political parties and uh, and political and cultural figures and the the indulgence of uh, Ilhan Omar and Representative Rashida Tlaib and and others in the squad who are the leaders of the the BDS movement in the House of Representatives by the Democratic Party um, is is negative in its own way. And we can argue and uh, we will argue about which is worse, um, which side is worse. Um, I, I think the, the only, and I don't wanna get into that argument now, the salient point being that one party is in control of the House and the Senate, at least for now, and, uh, and uh, the government, so to speak. Um, and the other party at the moment isn't, at least not until January when the Republicans take over the, the House. So um, indulgence, support for um, institutional support for BDS and anti-Semitism is coming from all sides. And one might cynically say that having helped create a problem, politicians are now in the forefront of trying to solve it. So I, by my count, there are, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, maybe six initiatives literally in the last uh, three weeks, uh, political initiatives designed to address um, anti-Semitism. I'll start with, with really the most recent, uh, a call by, uh, a call, a, uh, an order by the um, Biden administration to create an interagency um, effort, a task force that will address anti-Semitism. And if you look at the decree, um, anti-Semitism is in the title. And then if you read down into the, the text, it says, uh, the president is, and I quote, the president is establishing an interagency group led by domestic policy council staff and national security council staff to increase and better coordinate US government efforts to counter anti-Semitism, Islamophobia and related forms of bias and discrimination. So what we have here is um, all, all lives matter and anti-Semitism must be counterbalanced by the US government with um, largely largely absent, although not imaginary, but largely absent um, Islamophobia. And so this is the latest. There was um, a summit held by the mayor of Athens, Athens, Greece, uh, which invited mayors from all over the world. New York City Mayor Eric Adams took in a junket there where they said, all the mayors said, all the appropriate things about how anti-Semitism is bad. There was a summit, I believe, yesterday um, in New York City 
sponsored by the Orthodox Union, uh, the leading um, Jewish Orthodox uh, group in America, which was attended by uh, New York State Governor Kathy Hochul and um, Mayor Eric Adams, and um, both of whom said all the all the right things. There was, um, in, in terms of other initiatives, the the Virginia state of Virginia had created uh, under the new governor um, Yunkin a commission to study anti-Semitism, which released a report um, last week, which specifically pointed to BDS as being a a source of uh, growing anti-Semitic sentiment within the state of Virginia. Um, and also, uh, interestingly, importantly, criticized President Trump for his, former President Trump for his, again, let's say indulgence of, of anti-Semites. Um, finally, there was a statement by recently elected British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak um, saying that he would endeavor once again to have BDS banned in Britain, excuse me, at least in terms of uh, official declarations from uh, various councils and cities or municipalities as as we would call them in in the US and it's, again it's useful necessary to mention that in Britain the the anti-semitism crisis which brought down the labor party and um, the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn began on campus with the uh, with local clubs, which uh, essentially adopted BDS policies and, and banned Jews and Jewish speakers, uh, pro-Israel speakers. So all of this represents efforts by the political caste in, in Western states um, to address, to address uh, anti-Semitism and uh, to some extent its origins in, in BDS. It's, um, I don't wish to be too cynical. Those of you who listen to this, these webinars uh, regularly know that um, I am, but I'll, I'll restrain myself in the, the spirit of the season perhaps. But I'll also note that um, that there are uh, shenanigans being undertaken that, um, for example, you know, the White House, ex uh, the White House interagency initiative is a, is a perfect illustration of um, the top line giveth and the fine print taketh away that uh, in addition to the fact that interagency is the place where issues are sent to die in the American governmental bureaucracy. And we should also note that uh, the FBI's um, hate crime statistics, which were released a day or two ago, um, don't include, uh, which show that hate crimes directed against Jews have dropped dramatically. Unfortunately, as uh, observers were, were instantly pointed out, I mean, literally instantly, these statistics don't include um, figures from New York City and Los Angeles where hate crimes directed against Jews are um, off the charts compared to previous years. 
so there is, and one again might be cynical about these omissions and the FBI claimed rather lamely that, oh, they, these data were not released to them so they couldn't include them. But it's, um, it's all very fishy and, and should be regarded um, as such. Um, and there's a related, and this relates to another development that is, is emerging. It's very difficult to figure into how, in particular, political institutions are, are going to respond to anti-Semitism and specifically to BDS. And that's the new Israeli government under um, forthcoming uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, routinely described, I think correctly so, as comprising far-right elements, um, far, you know, sort of ultra-religious and, and ultra-Zionist, so-called, um, parties. Um, the point being that there have, uh, and the government uh, has, is not yet formed, uh, Netanyahu asked for an extension, asked the, the president of Israel for an extension to form the government a couple of days ago, because he has to wrangle all of these very um, fractious and difficult, to say the least, characters. And um, But there have already been a number of warnings emanating from European and American sources. So the uh, sources close to or part of the European Union have warned publicly that the EU uh, will have to reassess its its relationship with Israel and certain kinds of uh, uh, diplomatic and cultural interactions and and in, in particular one thing that was mentioned in particular were uh, uh, exchanges of intelligence that they would have to reassess this because individuals like um, Itamar Ben-Gvir, uh, who seems to be destined to run the Israeli police, um, are far right and uh, problematic, as, as academics would say. Uh, you know, the warnings from the EU are, are generally diffuse because it's a it's a diffused and nebulous power structure. Um, when you he start hearing warnings from the European Commission, uh, sort of the governing body, then then these things have a little more substance. Now, on the other hand, when you see a um, an op-ed in the Washington Post from two former ambassadors to, uh, to former diplomats, including one ambassador to Israel. So um, Aaron David Miller and uh, I'm forgetting Shapiro's first name. Um, in any case, um, wrote a, an, an op-ed in the Washington Post saying that the incoming government of Israel might be so extreme that the U.S. should consider uh, limiting or banning uh, weapons exports to, to Israel. So calling for the U.S. government to essentially adopt BDS policy on, on, on Israel. These kinds of things don't take place uh, on their own. 
this is a, a warning shot from within the 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 deep state so-called and its many and its many uh, corners or aspects expressing disapproval of the emerging government in in Israel one way or another if this government comes together it's going to be trouble for supporters of Israel and um, we can talk about what what it mean, will mean practically. My personal opinion, and this is only my personal opinion, is that Netanyahu will find ways to undercut and um, his coalition partners on the right and limit their uh, effectiveness and their discriminatory policies as much as possible. He's already made many announcements to that effect, including today. Um, and so, so we'll see. But the larger political environment for BDS and for ant fighting anti-Semitism is thus changed with governments um, really arguing on all sides. So this brings us to, to campus, which is uh, where there were a number of the usual sorts of events, uh, Hanukkah menorahs vandalized here and there and that sort of thing. But I want to talk about three, um, three areas. One is that the Middle East Studies Association um, had its annual meeting at the end of November in, um, and after adopting BDS as a formal policy of the organization in the spring, has decided to double down or triple down or quadruple down by awarding, giving out a, a number of prizes for academic freedom, specifically to BDS supporting Palestinian NGOs like Al-Haq and Adamir. And so if one was, was uh, skeptical or, or dismissive of the, of the role and the impact of the professoriate and its official organs or institutions, <clears throat> excuse, me, excuse me, like the Middle East Studies Association, um, fear no more, question no more. They're 150% they're down with, with the cause. And I think that this will, on the one hand, uh, shape the campus environment as it, continue, as it has to some extent in the past. Um, whether it will be a self-marginalizing strategy in the larger political ecology of the of academia, I think um, is now a, a viable question. And as I've made the point I've made many times in the past on these webinars is that the the extremism displayed by by many of these organizations and by BDS supporters generally is. Um, alienating and has alienated and continues to alienate large numbers of of students and other faculty and parents and taxpayers and legislators and normal people generally, which has led to the shrinkage of many of these disciplines in terms of enrollments and in terms of their impact within within certain kinds of policy spheres on the other hand the the extremism that 
is reflected in these in these disciplines by faculty members and indulged to a large extent by by university administrations produces um, hardcore activists uh, as the majors in these in these fields who then go on filled with passion to uh, occupy positions of responsibility in other universities as graduate students or ultimately faculty members or within the cultural sphere uh, the economic sphere as you know uh, as hr reps in corporations and um, most nefariously i think in in the political sphere as staffers on the hill and as analysts in in various governmental agencies not to mention the circulation through the ecology of think tanks and NGOs and so on. So we'll see. Um, I have a I have a note here about uh, that says Musk mania, uh, <laughs> which refers to the purchase and and now takeover of Twitter by um, billionaire. He's not really a billionaire. He's a zillionaire, Elon Musk. But I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave that for the time being because the implications for anti-Semitism and for hate speech and for BDS really haven't uh, are, aren't clear. And there's a lot of misinformation smoking blown in every direction about that. But I want to end with one event um, because I happen to have, have been there. It was uh, last week at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Um, Asaf Ramorowski was one of the speakers and um, we were hanging out, and uh, so I got to observe the disruption by uh, the local BDS faction. And this has gotten a certain amount of play in in the press, and I think I think rightly so. But what was interesting to me, and it had been a long time, you know, pre-pandemic since I had seen one of these protests. Uh, the protesters handed out leaflets. They got a number of facts wrong. Spelling was fairly atrocious. <clears throat> uh, but at the beginning of the event, they got up, and you can see a video of this on the Algaminer website or someplace, with banners, and they disrupted, and they, you know, with with arms held high, the four of them uh, chanted slogans about no settler colonial, colonialism and blah, 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 for 10 minutes or so until the cops came and they were escorted out. They, they didn't have to be dragged out, fortunately. So they got yelled at by the crowd, which was, which was nice. But who were these people? There was one um, British guy or guy with a British accent who was with red hair, who was about six foot four. There was one short woman, uh, they're all wearing masks, very COVID respectful, uh, who was about, who had a shaved head. Um, and, and two other, two other women. And I think it's, a, it's important or interesting at least, because they, they provide a very nice cross section of BDS supporters on, on campus. And one could easily see that they went from this event to the revolutionary Marxist um, meeting in the next hour. Uh, they were not particularly interested in listening. They repeated a lot of slogans over and over and over again, got rather boring and repetitive. 
so it attracts the point being that the that the the movement so to speak attracts a certain kind of bourgeois disaffected bourgeois young person on on campus um and at a place like the city of the university of new york um these kinds of loud mouths um obnoxious loud mouths bad who are bad spellers i should mention that again um while not dominant they certainly uh are a visible a visible part of the landscape and an obnoxious disruptive part of the landscape and one can easily see that if there is a critical mass of these loud obnoxious um disaffected bourgeois young people that they could really you, you could see the ways in which they could shape the campus environment forcing jewish students uh, including um, overtly Jewish students from religious backgrounds to keep their mouths shut in order to simply not make a scene. Um, Palestinian or Arab or Muslim students were missing from this particular event, but they also form a, another part of the equation on campus. And um, so it was a nice illustration of where some of the uh, some of the support for BDS was was coming from and they were ejected without too much trouble and the event um, went on discussing aspects of the israeli-palestinian question and a, a publication in which um, asaf and i and many of our colleagues were involved called word crimes which came out a few years ago as part of as a special issue of the journal israel studies and and so on so I think on that on that note, um, let me let me stop uh, and and take some take some questions, and uh, we'll we'll see what, what we can make of all this. Great, thank you as always, Alex. Uh, and indeed, uh, just to echo your remarks, it was uh, indeed a fascinating illustration. Uh, you know, being back on campus and observing uh, the individuals and the BDS uh, crowd uh, in action. Uh, so that was indeed uh, quite uh, informative and, 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 and anecdotally and uh, just to kind of get a sense of what the campuses are like these days. Um, but the floor is now open. Uh, as I said before, if you have questions, please feel free to type in your questions via the chat or raise your virtual uh, hand and I'll be able to unmute you and we will take it from there. Um, so uh, I... Um, uh, for, all right, I see Monty Krieger already has a question. Um, so let's let's go to the the audience first, and then we can go back and forth here as well, Alex. Um, so um, Monty was uh, was asking for a little bit more clarification about uh, the Omar uh, event that you mentioned, the photo op at the White House, and uh, maybe you want to you know say a few more words about that. Yeah, let me let me try and find my notes ab uh, about that. There was a there was a picture in yeah i saw that in the in one of the papers i think it was a christmas party or something um so let me let me go to this i mean I, look there's an issue that that uh that you know the yeah it looks like it was a, a christmas party of of some kind 
Right. And, um, you know, he's he's the president of the United States. Lots of people want to take uh, take take their picture with him, and he's going to end up having his picture taken with all sorts of unsavory people. That's that's just how it works. Uh, on the other hand, this is from within his party, and um, the the issue isn't so much a picture or a photo op. The issue is the way that uh, that Ilhan Omar and the rest of the squad has been treated with kit gloves by the Democratic leadership, um, who have who have kept their mouths shut and indulged these um, these characters, as opposed to the the Democratic rank and file. Um, other Democrats have uh, representatives and and within the larger establishment have been have been extremely critical of of Omar Omar's um, anti-Semitism. It's, it's all about the Benjamins and other imputations of Jewish um, manipulation and and power. Her her advocacy of punitive legislation against uh, against Israel and and so on um but you don't hear it from pelosi and you don't hear it from chuck schumer and you haven't really heard it from the white house <laughs> the white house is sort of in a pickle in that the press secretary um whatever her name is again i'm i'm blanking out um she was a bds supporter herself um a, a few years ago so the point is that it's fair to to it's fair it's necessary to to criticize the the white house and the democratic establishment for um Karine Jean-Pierre Jean she's the white house uh, sec, uh press secretary and she was uh she was a a big bds supporter before she got before she got this job and uh Israel has hypnotized the world, and uh, that's one of that's one of Omar's famous statements. So there's a uh, you know it's not an issue of a double standard. I think there has to be one standard um, that that everybody who who appears with or indulges anti-Semites has to be um, has to be called out and and criticized and uh certainly the criticism that has uh befallen pr president former president trump is um appropriate and possibly inadequate um and uh, in including from some but not all of his uh, jewish supporters who are some of whom at the most uh let's say from from certain corners have been hand -wring, expressed hand wringing and kind of puzzlement uh over these very very bad decisions to to appear with um with uh Kanye and uh and others so it's about one it's not one standard it's also about who runs the government now as opposed to before great um let's uh let me let me go to the next question if that's okay with you alex yeah yeah please 
Uh, okay, let me, uh, I see that uh, Judy Friedman has her hand up. Let me try to unmute her and see, we'll let her ask her question here. Uh, okay. Judy, can you hear us? Judy. Judy, you, if you're able to hear us, you can ask your question. Mm. Not okay, then we will. Well, we apologize. Sometimes these things don't always. Yeah, we apologize. All right, we'll, we'll go back to, uh, we'll try again, but we'll go back to the, uh, to the chat here. Uh, okay, so Richard uh, uh, Galber is asking a, uh, uh, let me try to look at, you know, uh, a long question here. Uh, how is it possible that the US and the EU are threatening to refuse to accept um, the new Israeli government, uh, yet they enthusiastically, you know, embrace other kind of forms of government that are coming, you know, that are extreme, you know, that are undemocratic Palestinian regime groups uh, that are homophobic, misogynistic, and other kind of examples. Uh, again, apropos the double standard, but maybe you want to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in Europe as well uh, to, to uh, relate to Richard's question here. Well, I think you really just can't be cynical enough about the EU. Um, the, on the other hand, you know, the EU does have certain broad kinds of um, prejudices. It, it really, really, really doesn't like regimes that it, it deems illiberal, which um, namely in, in its own neighborhood, namely Poland and Hungary. And these these might be more, and I don't have I'm far I'm no expert on any of these things, and I I have no brief for these for these governments or societies, but um, the EU generally wants to see uh, itself everywhere that it that it looks, and if you're not a, a, a liberal society on the nature of the Netherlands, with that kind of with that, with with those characteristics, particularly as they pertain to uh, ethnic issues and gender issues and uh, and so on, if you're traditional, if you have religious uh, a religious thread to your national identity, then they're not then then they, the officials of this and uh, the elected officials of this imperial. Um, construction are not really going to like you. And you add to this traditional European animosity towards towards Israel as something that they believe should just go away um, on the part many Europeans believe this, uh, then you have a, a, a double standard now. They're perfectly happy, obviously, to deal with um, China and to sell whatever they can to China as exports and to sell uh, in particular transportation systems, ports and railroads to China as part of the belt and road system, which is uniting the entire planet into a kind of Chinese economic um, 
Empyrean. So uh, the, the inconsistencies are, are obvious. It's a little more complicated when it comes to, to the US when you have um, you know, two former State Department officials calling for a weapons, um, a weapons embargo against Israel. Now, um, you know, this is a shot across the bow on the, and uh, on the part of the establishment and uh, who, where these individuals sit within the establishment is, is you know, uh, uh, an interesting question. But these kinds of things, and, you know, obviously the Washington Post is one of the, the two favored newspapers for official leaks. Um, Washington Post gets <laughs> gets half of its information from from its leaks from CIA and and the State Department. Uh, if those two or organizations stopped talking to the Washington Post, they would be four pages long. And um, so it's it's and again, if you want to talk about standards, double standards, triple standards, there are no standards. Uh, none of these none of these institutions or individuals have particular standards except when it comes to Israel where they think that they have all the answers and they and that they set the standards as opposed to Israelis that, that there has to be one type of democracy whatever that is but it's not whatever Israel has at a particular moment and we should also mention that uh, you know, the, the inclusion of uh, an Islamist party uh, connected to the Muslim Brotherhood in the last government was seen as a as a, an enlightened moment on the part of external observers. Here you have a party that is opposed to the existence of Israel, and that's and including that in the in the Knesset and in the government, it was was okay, as opposed to um, Jewish parties who are not favorably inclined towards Arabs or Muslims, to say the least. Um, their inclusion is is. Uh, bad for democracy. So I think we have to start stop talking about democracy as an abstract and, and have discussions about what democracy means in particular contexts. And you know, if we want to have another four hour webinar about that, I'll be happy to get on my soapbox, but uh, maybe, maybe I should stop there. Well, good. Uh, thank you. So let me go over to Carl's question here. And uh, so Carl is obviously uh, commenting that we've seen this growth and leaps and bounds of BDS all over, you know, legal bodies in the current administration. Uh, and he's asking whether or not um, Zionist Jews need to come out of the shadows and start finding their voices uh, to fight back. Uh, obviously, you know, we've spoken about that. And I'll, I'll let you comment about that, Alex. Uh, but maybe also, uh, you know, you know, let me add to Carl's question. Um, you know, the debate that you know that you, you know the point that you started to make about the normalizing of anti-Semitism and the fact that racism in the United States only means one thing, as we saw articulated by the Kanye West, you know, aka Yee these days, and the question of the reactions other, you know, a la Chappelle and others. Uh, and other all these uh, talk show hosts that were commenting, uh, you know, maybe a little bit to, to comment about, you know, why anti-Semitism is not seen as racism, and you know, what is, what's, what what is it going to take for, uh, you know, 
this more forceful way uh, of coming out to stand our ground? Well, let me start. At, let me start with that. I don't. I don't know how how to stand one's ground any more than than I'm doing. I mean, it's you have to be you have to be vocal. You have to be willing to you know state things publicly when that is contextually appropriate and and potentially useful. Why isn't anti-Semitism seen as racism? is a, is a very interesting question, though. And I think that that's, I think the the obvious answer is that racism in the American context has to deal has to do with race. Now, again, we could do a four hour webinar what race means or doesn't mean in in reality, whatever that is. Um, but the perception is in the American again in the American context is that race is has to do with black and white. And it has, and that these are these are um, these are categories that are somehow somehow both fixed um, on the one hand, fixed and inescapable, and there is blackness and there is whiteness, um, but they're also um, malleable and and uh, and movable, or the the boundaries um, and the definitions change and one of the most egregious things that's happened in in the last five years is that american concepts of race which are based on, on you know crude reductionist notions of black and black and white literally uh which obviously have historical real meaningful historical roots in the experience of of this country, much of which is horrendous and negative, these have been exported to the world, and these have been projected specifically by the BDS movement onto uh, the Israeli Arab Israeli Israeli Palestinian conflict, where Israelis become white, Palestinians become black, uh, in in specific racial kinds of terms as well as conceptual terms uh, as um, the oppressed and the oppressor none of which actually makes sense when you look at it in 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 any critical sort of way but this is where we're at and the trajectory over the last five years has been to um assign uh, American Jews into a kind of super white category. American Jews come from all sorts of backgrounds, not only Eastern European. This notion of whiteness as being, you know, somehow Caucasian or Euro-American is, is a huge uh, reductionist notion, and, um, but, it's, but it's deliberate. And what people have argued, and I think correctly, and I, I think I mentioned this at the end of the last monitor, is that what's, what's really going on in a lot of these kinds of um, assertions is that because American, uh, because American Jews are successful as a demographic, say, 
which is in itself a kind of uh, overstatement or, or, I don't know, exaggeration. Um, they are therefore they are therefore white, and in a zero sum game that is being posited in American society today for minorities, for black people and brown people, whoever they are, to succeed, white people must um, but must fail, and Jews as the super whitest people in America because of their success largely and to some extent because of their skin color um, have to be have to be removed from a position of success and they have to be discriminated against um, now the you know, the other people who are uh, other demographics um, Asian Americans Indian Americans who don't fit, fit so neatly into this black white um, equation um, are often accused of being white adjacent or functionally white. Um, and it's about a kind of cutthroat socioeconomic and cultural political competition in which um, there have to be winners and losers and Jews have to be the losers in this, in this equation. And the BDS movement I think has played on this, fomented this, and um, allies with with these conceptions um, uh, increasingly, uh, both from 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 two different sides, from the kind of traditional uh, communist socialist um, perspective, and I have a note someplace about uh, the. <laughs> The, the Tufts University Revolutionary Marxist um, Brigade or whatever they're called, um, coming out in support of, of BDS or and, and co-sponsoring BDS events with the BDS movement on, on campus, which is a neat illustration of, of this kind of traditional left-wing left -wing alliance. But increasingly, over the last few years, you see a lot of BDS support for and BDS support from um, other sorts of minority movements and groups. Um, and the, the leading example, I think, was uh, Black Lives Matter and, uh, which, and the Women's March, which originally had um, very clear statements in support of BDS. And it's all about who, at the end of the day, in, a, in the American context, it's all about who wins and who loses. And there can only be winners and losers in this, in this mindset. And there has to, because a, a lot of it is, is predicated on retribution against, uh, against former winners. And, and this has played out obviously in admission policies on uh, on campus which discriminate explicitly against uh, against asian americans and um maybe not so much against against jews um but success success must be penalized and instead of figuring out ways for everybody to succeed um people have to be pulled off the ladder 
so that others can presumably climb up. And, you know, this is a kind of analysis that maybe has some utility to uh, to to seeing the the Arab-Israeli conflict or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's it's racial, but it's not really racial. It has to do with oppressors and oppress and the oppressed, but not really. It has to do with the inability of or, or the, the the belief that um, for for one group to succeed, another group has to fail, and not only fail, but to be punished, and not only to be punished, but to be in the Israeli context to be expelled um, from from the the sea, the the river to the sea. So I don't know whether that's an answer, but uh, we'll, let, no, all, I'll go. I'll go with that. It's all good. Thank you. Uh, let's move on to our our, our friend uh, Steve Gersoff. Uh, there's a few questions, but let me try to get to his last question here. Um, and his observation regarding the centrality of the uh, the fallacious accusation regarding apartheid, uh, and uh, you know Steve believes that that is the the center uh, of the uh, of the BDS claim. And if we were able to dispute and refute uh, the apartheid claim, you know that would reduce or even eliminate BDS. Uh, any comments on that. I don't think it's I don't think it's the central claim. I think it's a central part of the rhetoric and has been since uh, the late 1950s when it began, or early 1960s when it began with Soviet bloc and it was moved to um, Arab and Muslim bloc, which all the way which culminated uh, percolated through the United Nations system. I think it's. I think it's a key part of the, the rhetoric, um, but I think that increasingly the settler colonial notion rhetoric is is as important, at least on campus. I think I think that certain refuta refutations is that a word of of the apartheid claim are are sort of straightforward that. Uh, Arab citizens of Israel um, have have the vote. They participate in the in the political and economic system as as citizens, and indeed vote for their own parties, and so on and so on. And yes, while there is discrimination, and that's unfortunate, um, there's discrimination in every society, and that has to, and it's being addressed. It has to be addressed. And uh, whereas Palestinians living in the West Bank, the Judea and Samaria, across the Green Line, whatever we want to call it, they are um, not Israeli citizens, and they are under occupation, so-called, um, and that's a different category. Although it has nothing to do explicitly with apartheid, I think occupation is is a more involved sort of uh, concept or problem to to address um and you hear that you hear that a lot and you hear the settler colonial thing which which simply states that uh, jews zionists um came in with the support of imperial powers from nowhere uh, and have no implies that they have no connection with this land or that they would you know they had vacated the land for millennia and then suddenly they're back and you know kicking palestinians out and kicking them around um the whole settler colonial 
concept is is flawed and and uh, in its own right. And uh, in fact, I wrote a thing a number of years ago, uh, which showed that uh, Palestinians are the settler colonialists par excellence because they're descendants of Arab invaders who came in in the first millennium uh, CE, 1400 or so years ago. They're Muslims, so they're, um, the, which is not an indigenous belief system to the to the region and and so on and so on so i i think that one has to i think you have to be careful about asserting where the problems are where where the individual rhetoric uh which individual rhetoric is the most dangerous or problematic and, and, uh, and that's an interesting connection with this event at cuny um last week which addressed which was disrupted which addressed the the volume called Word Crimes, which I contributed to, Asaf and many of our friends and colleagues contributed to, which looked specifically at terms like apartheid, like genocide, like human rights, which had been manipulated, co-opted, turned inside out and on their heads by the BDS movement, by um, by supporters of the of Palestinians uh, distorted all out of all out of shape in order to prove that uh, the Jews the Zionists the Israelis are the a singular unique evil and uh, committing genocide violating all human rights imaginable um, occupying um, occupied lands um, and so on and so on so um, I would certainly commend that that issue of Israel studies to uh, to everybody, because there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of very interesting analysis in it, including about I think apartheid as a as a term. So uh, that's true. I mean, to that point, Alex, you know, if any of our um, audience this afternoon are interested in volumes, if you email us after, you can purchase uh, copies through us as well. I mean, and, and, and I think it's great that you mentioned, you know, the whole argument, the whole experiment, and really, you know, what we did uh, with the volume itself, with the idea of dissecting these terms. But of course, all of that is part of the larger ingredients which fall under the rubric of the anti-normalization that falls, that is one of the dry, that is one of the driving forces of the BDS movement, and all these uh, co-opted terminology and phrases have really, uh, it shut down debate, which is exactly what we saw, we saw take place uh, at the event itself by refusing right. to. And, that, and that's a very good, that's a very good point. Uh, there were a number of people before and during this little protest uh, that said, well, why don't we, why don't we talk about it? Why don't we discuss it? And, and one of the, or one of the protesters said, no, no, dis no discussion with uh, with occupiers. Um, these issues, these you know, the occupation is not up for debate. Human rights abuses are not up for debate. So, okay, if you're not, if it's not up for debate, if you adopt essentially a religious stance of absolute conviction that you have the 100% truth on this on this issue, then yeah, there's no there's there's nothing to talk about and 
Um, that unfortunately is very much the position of uh, much, if not all of, of the BDS movement, that there's no, there's no, there's nothing to, to, to talk about. There's no analysis. I, my argument actually in, in my paper in, in Word Crimes is that the, <clears throat> the, this is, a, this is a, a secular religious stance that uh, it's a substitute for uh, traditional, traditional religions. And that uh, there's a, within this, it's structured like a church. There's a hierarchy, there are organizations, there are priests, there are, uh, uh, and there are causes. And at the center is a new notion of a sacralized Palestinian people who are the new Jews. Um, and, and there's nothing, and there's literally nothing to, to talk about, and everything has to be centered on, on that. So, um, and, and that in a nutshell is part of the, the anti-Israel, anti-Zionist religion uh, that we've been seeing and uh, writing, discussing uh, about, you know, how it uh, mutates uh, from campus to campus and from other institution to every other institution that we're seeing on all societal levels today. Right, and I'm, I make this point probably every webinar, every other webinar. Americans are the most religious people on planet Earth. It's just that they don't believe in traditional religions anymore. They believe right. in other religions. They believe in really in two primary overarching religions, in my view. Uh, one is human rights, and one and the other is environmentalism. And that these are absolutely substitutes for um, traditional traditional religions, which are theocentric, and you know, and in the view of many of these adherents, there's simply nothing to talk about, um, and they're willing to go to tremendous lengths, almost any length, to uh, to promote and support their religion. They're willing to vilify um, non-believers, particularly the villains. The Jews, in case you were, in case you were wondering, um, who are who are uh, deviants and who are, you know, holding back the, holding back the the uh, achievement of utopia, um, at least in the human rights sphere. So, okay. well, thank you as always, Alex. I know there's a, there's a lot to talk about. We tried, to, and there's always a lot of ground to cover, and obviously there is a. Uh, the the ongoing uh, changes and ebb and flow of uh, of our topic uh, provides for a lot of material. Uh, so I do on that note apologize for not getting to all the questions we still have left in the chat. And as I mentioned before, uh, please feel free to email us at bdsmonitor at spme.org and we will do our best to respond in a timely fashion. Uh, I want to thank Alex as always for joining me. Uh, and uh, I want to thank you, the audience, for coming and joining us this afternoon. As always, uh, please be on the lookout for future webinars uh, that are uh, that are coming forth. And um, of course, if there are questions along the way, be on the lookout for uh, more um, more information that will be coming. Uh, and we wish everybody. I guess at this point, uh, this will be our last webinar of the year. So I would like to say at this point, wishing everybody a happy holiday season and a happy new year. Uh, and we will talk uh, again after the first of the year. So thank you very much. 
and have a good day.